The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. Are you experiencing stress in an important relationship in your life? Do you know what it feels like to have a close relationship with someone whose words are not dependable and whose actions are unpredictable? If simply walking away from this relationship is not an option, are there coping skills out there for navigating such an experience? These are the questions that we're going to try to answer in today's installment of our Life Lessons series. It's a series where we're looking at the lives of men and women in the Bible, studying their circumstances, analyzing their actions to see what we can apply to our lives today. And today we're focusing in on a couple whose story is found in 1 Samuel chapter 25. 1 Samuel chapter 25. I would encourage you, if you have a Bible, to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 25 in the Old Testament. If you, uh, if you don't bring your Bible to church, you should. This is a great opportunity to interact with Scripture, a great time to, to learn where uh, books are and what God is saying in each of these books. If you say, Darren, I don't even own a Bible, well, then take the copy of the Bible that's in the back of the pew in front of you. Take that as our gift to you. That is now your Bible. You own it. It's our gift. Walk home with it and enjoy it. 1 Samuel chapter 25. Now, this couple that we're about to meet today, their marriage was a mess. But out of that mess, we're going to glean some reliable and some valuable relationship insights. So as you're sitting here today, if you are married or if you plan to be married, or if you're single and, but you're experiencing some level of relationship turmoil somewhere in your life, I believe that there are some truths that we're going to learn today that can help you. So let's meet today's couple. The first few verses of 1 Samuel chapter 25 give us a glimpse into this husband and wife team. Uh, I've printed uh, this portion of scripture on your outlines today. It says this in verses two and three. A certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. This is sort of the northwestern portion of Israel. He had a 1,000 goats and 3,000 sheep which he was shearing at Carmel, so he was cutting off the the wool. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and a beautiful woman, but her husband, well, he was surly and mean in his dealings. Now, names were highly symbolic in the Old Testament. They, They were often prophetic or descriptive. Her name is Abigail. Abigail means a source of joy. According to Samuel, Abigail was an intelligent and beautiful source of joy to everyone who was around her. She sounds like every man's dream. And her husband, well, let's just say that he was closer to every woman's nightmare. His name was Nabal, and Nabal means fool. Kind of makes you wonder what his parents were thinking when they named him, doesn't it? It's a boy! Congratulations, it's a boy. What will you call him? He looks like a fool. Let's call him fool. Okay, fool it is. Well, Nabal lived up or down to his name. According to Samuel, Nabal was abrasive in his personality. He was mean in his interactions with people. Later in the chapter, he's described, and I quote, as such a wicked man that no one could talk to him. But Nabal did have one thing going for him. Nabal was very 
wealthy. So we've got to ask ourselves this question. How did this couple ever get together? It had to be more than money. I mean, how and why would a joyful woman marry such a mean man? Well, in that culture at that time, this would very likely have been an arranged marriage, meaning Abigail's parents and Nabal's parents would have set this marriage up long ago. That's how it was done. Seeing Nabal's family wealth, Abigail's parents likely figured they were setting their daughter up for a wonderful life. That would have been their hope, but that wasn't to be Abigail's reality. Nabal was wealthy, but Nabal was a fool. He knew how money worked, he just didn't know how a marriage worked. You could say that Nabal had a lot of dollars, but he didn't have a lot of sense. See what I did there? Come on, that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, you should be clapping right now. No, come on. Don't want your sympathy claps. Nabal's foolishness would spill over into Abigail's life time and time again. By the way, Can we hit the pause button here for a moment? We're talking today about how to navigate choppy relationships in life and choppy waters. But the best relationship advice that can be given is preventative. You see, when it comes to marriage, the best advice, and I'm certain Abigail would would agree with me here, is this. And it's the first blank. Choose your spouse wisely. Choose your spouse wisely. The starting point for wisely choosing a marriage partner is to choose someone who has a shared faith with you. Now, this isn't the only thing to look for, but it is far and away the first thing that you should look for. You say, Darren, why does a shared faith matter? Because your faith represents what you value at your core. Your faith represents your ultimate aspirations in life. Why would you even consider tying your life to someone who doesn't value what you value, who doesn't desire at their core what you desire at your core? Why would you even do that? The Bible puts it this way in the New Testament, the the second half of the Bible. In a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 6, 14, he wrote this. He said, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. You say, what do eggs have to do with relationships? No, no. We'll we'll explain this in a second. He said, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What Paul's doing here is he's referencing an Old Testament principle. An Old Testament principle was this. You are not allowed as a farmer to yoke, to tie together two different animals. A yoke was the thing that went over the neck of oxen. Uh, on your side screens there, those, that device, that wooden device over the neck of those oxen, those, that's a yoke. And you, in the Old Testament, the principle given was this. If you have a strong animal and a weak animal, do not yoke them together. Do not pair them up. Why? Because the strong animal will harm the weaker one. You should only yoke together two equal animals. Otherwise, the one will harm the other. It's an inefficient, ineffective way of putting animals, uh, creatures together. Paul took that Old Testament principle and he made it a relationship principle. He said, if you're a follower of Jesus, don't yoke your life to someone who doesn't share your faith. Why? Well, because it's ineffective and inefficient in life. 
So before we talk about how to navigate the pain of an unstable relationship, let's put it out there. The best marital advice is to avoid forming a relationship that's unstable in the first place. The best advice is this. Stable relationships are formed from the inside out, not the outside in. Stable relationships are formed when you at your core and they at their core value and love the same things. Avoid tying your life to someone whose core values and desires are not the same as yours. Folks, understand this. The Bible doesn't teach this as a way of limiting your options. The Bible teaches this as a way of limiting your pain. Of course, a shared faith is not a guarantee for a perfect marriage. Just because someone has a faith doesn't mean they'll live their faith. So then, how do you cope when you find yourself tied to someone whose inability and instability, I should say, is pulling on your life? What do you do when your life has gotten sucked into someone else's chaos? How can a person navigate through such turmoil? Ask Abigail. She knows all about it. She experienced instability and chaos at the highest level, at the level of life and death. Here's what happened. Nabal's shepherds spent months out in the fields looking after Nabal's thousands of of sheep and animals. Now, this was dangerous work being a shepherd because the fields were filled with robbers who were willing to steal sheep and kill shepherds. And in those days, there was no such thing as a local police department. It was every man and woman for themselves. But Nabal's shepherds were being protected by a small army of men whose leader was none other than David. David, you mean mean King David? Well, yes and no. It's the same person, but this is before David was king. At this point in David's life, he was in hiding because the king at that point, King Saul, was jealous of David. So David and his small army of followers of men were living in the mountains, surviving off the land and from resources they got by helping local farmers and local shepherds. See, David knew how dangerous it was to be a shepherd. He was once a shepherd. And so he, he put together this service, this army of men who would protect local shepherds. So this protecting, though, wasn't done on a contract basis. The understanding was this. At shearing time, when you're you're making your money, you're selling the wool, at that time, the farmers would provide a token of their appreciation for the services that had been rendered in the months previous. Think of it this way. In 1971, Nike co-founder Phil Knight paid Carolyn Davidson $35 to design the Nike logo. Carolyn Davidson got $35 for designing that logo. Now, this was when Nike was just starting, before it took off. But in in 1981, 10 years later, after Nike had gone through the roof when it came to valuation, what happened was Phil Knight gave Ms. Davidson a gold ring with a Nike swoosh in it and an envelope filled with Nike stock. Now, the company was not legally obligated to pay Carolyn Davidson a penny, but everyone knew it was the right thing to do. Well, the dynamic between David and Nabal is similar to that between Nike and and Davidson. David was simply looking for fair treatment. It's how things were done in that culture. Except this time, for some bizarre reason, 
Nabal's instability and foolishness kicked in. When David's representatives showed up to be paid, Nabal said, no, I'm not going to pay anything. But in his typical surly and mean fashion, Nabal wasn't happy to just say no. Oh, no. Nabal had to take it up a notch and be highly sarcastic and insulting as well. Look at verse 10 of math, or 1 Samuel 25. It says, Nabal answered David's servants, who is this David? Who, who's this son of Jesse you're talking about? You know, many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Is that who he is? Is he one of those? Why should I take my bread and water and the meat that I've slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? Seriously. Nabal says, you want money for your boss, David? David who? David who? Everybody was singing songs about David. He had slain Goliath. Everyone knew who David was. They knew King Saul was jealous of him. That's why Saul was jealous, because everybody knew and loved David. Nabal saying, David who? What a moron. I mean, could this guy be any dumber? You know, people, slaves are running away from their masters nowadays. Is that what this is? Is David a guy who's run away from his master? How insulting. And he knew he was being, being insulting. Well, David's representatives listened to Nabal's rant. They took notes and they reported back to their boss. David was furious. And in anger, he pulls together 400 of his warriors, heads towards Nabal's home with the intention of killing Nabal and every male in his home and every male that works for him. And that brings us to act two. Act two in this drama is where Abigail is brought into the story. One of Nabal's servants rushes up to Abigail and tells her what's happened. As I imagine, you know, the servant runs in, Abby, you're not going to believe this. Why are you running so fast? I just came from, came from, from Nabal, from your husband, and you're not going to believe what he's done this time. What, what, what's he done? Abby, the guy's a moron. I tell you. Okay, so David's representatives come in. It's shearing time. You know, they want their money like we do all the time. And, and Nabal says, no, I'm not going to give you any money. In fact, who is David? Who is this guy? Is he a slave who's run away? I mean, seriously, this is David we're talking about. And this is what Nabal says. And so David's servants, they said, okay, but our master's is not going to like this. And they went back. This is not going to end well, Abigail. You got to do something. Well, what Abigail does next is a lesson for all of us when we're confronted with such moments of chaos. Abigail wisely follows the advice that her servant gives her. Look at the advice, it's in verse 17. Now, says Abigail, now think it over and see what you can do because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. And it says in verse 18, so Abigail acted quickly. So what do you do in living with a foolish and an unstable spouse? That's the next lesson today. Do what Abigail did. Don't react, respond. Don't react, respond. Now you say, Darren, what's the difference between reacting and responding? Let me put it to you this way. Our family has a couple dogs. And I'm sitting and watching TV or reading a book or something in a chair and the doorbell rings. When the doorbell rings, invariably, this is what happens. Our dogs do this. And they run to the door and look out the window. 
That's what our dogs do. Here's what I do. The doorbell rings, ding dong. Oh, I'm startled. I put the book down. I turn, put the mute button. I get up out of my chair. I walk over down the hallway to the front door. I look out the window, make sure I'm not about to be robbed. And then I open the door and I say, hello, how can I help you? See the difference? Dogs react, humans respond. Reactions are instant, responses are delayed. Reactions run, responses walk. When you're living with a foolish, unstable spouse, you need to learn and live this lesson. Don't react, respond. Remember this, folks. Foolishness is not a virus that you catch. Instability is not something that's passed on to you. Foolishness and instability are the result of choices that people make. Just because those around you are acting foolishly is no reason for you to act foolishly. Because my dogs get up and bark doesn't mean I go, (laughs) what? Everybody's doing it. Just because your spouse's life is unstable does not mean your life has to be unstable. When you're living with a foolish and unstable spouse, don't react, respond. Follow Abigail's example. Okay, well, Darren, how do you respond? Well, in verse 17, it kind of lays it out for us here. In verse 17, she's told, now, think it over. That's the first step in the responding process. Take time to think. Take time to think. Pause. When you get the news, when the chaos rises, pause. Take a breath. Don't react. Respond. How do I do that? First, take time to think. See, Abigail could have jumped up, run to Nabal, and shouted at him, Nabal, I can't believe it, you moron, you fool, you're doing it again. I heard what you did with David and his representatives. What are you doing? What are you thinking? What are you thinking, Nabal? You're a moron, a moron. (laughs) That's what she could have done. That would have been a reaction. But what was needed was a response. Look again at verse 17. Now think it over and see what you can do. That's the second step in the responding process. Formulate a wise plan. There are some things you can do and there are some things you can't do. There are some things you should do and there are some things you shouldn't do. Abigail had to discern, practically speaking, what needed to be done and what she could actually do. She needed to formulate a wise plan. And then, according to Samuel, after taking time to formulate a plan, Abigail took the third and final step in the responding process. And that is when you act decisively upon your plan. The Bible says, after she thought what she could do, Abigail acted quickly. Notice that. It didn't say, as soon as she heard the news, she acted quickly. No, after she thought and formulated a plan, then she acted quickly. And we see what she did in verse 18. It says, she took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five seahs of roasted grain, that's about 60 pounds, uh, 100 cakes of raisins, 200 cakes of pressed figs, loaded them on donkeys. You see how wealthy they were? They had this in their storerooms. Then she told her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she didn't tell her husband Nabal, the source of all this chaos. She didn't let him in on this quite yet. And that brings us to act three. 
Eventually, Abigail and her caravan of goods intercept or intersects with David's army, just a couple miles from Nabal's home. David's army is on their way. They've almost arrived. They meet, they intersect with each other in a mountain ravine just outside of Nabal's property. Nabal has no idea, by the way, that he and every male under his employment have only minutes to live. Abigail does what her husband should have done in the first place. She treats David with respect and with generosity. However, truth be told, she treats him with more respect and more generosity than would have initially been necessary if Nabal hadn't dug them into such a deep hole of debt towards David. The Bible says in verse 22, when Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. Now remember, David is not the king. He's just a guy who's running a protection agency. He's not the mafia. He's doing this kindly and generously. So he's not the king. She didn't have to do this, but she's very humble. But what she did next is a bit jolting to the ears. It's not something you expect to hear a woman say about her husband. It begins in verse 25. She says this to David as she's laying on the ground. She says, please pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man Nabal. He's just like his name. His name means fool and folly, foolishness goes with him. As for me, your servant, I didn't see the men my Lord sent. And let this gift which your servant has brought, which I brought to my Lord to you, let it be given to the men who follow you. Every time I read those words and picture that moment, my heart breaks for Abigail. She was placed in such a humiliating position. She's in the middle of yet another mess that her husband has made. And what she's saying here is this. She said, listen, David, I'm sorry. My husband Nabal is a fool. He's a moron. I know it. You know it. I apologize for him. Listen, I just heard what, what happened. I heard what he said to your men. They didn't come to me. I wasn't in on this. I was not aware of this. And as soon as I was told about it, I've gathered all these supplies and resources. Here, please accept this as my apology and this is our gift to you. Please forgive us. There are two unhealthy extremes people fall into when they live with an unstable parent or unstable person, unstable spouse. Two unhealthy extremes we can tend to fall into. The one extreme is to want to see the unstable person harmed. A lady was walking along a beach. She was upset. She was crying. She was frustrated. She's frustrated and commiserating over what's going on in her marriage. And as she's walking along the beach, she stumbles upon a bottle. She bends over, picks up the bottle, and brushes off the sand. And by brushing off the sand, out pops a genie. It's a true story. <laughs> the genie pops out of the bottle. And the genie says, why are you so sad? Why are you crying? And the woman says, I'm sad and crying because of my husband. He's a moron, he's a fool, and he gets us into so much difficulty and so many problems and so much trouble. And the genie says, well, listen, I've got good news for you. I'm gonna grant you three wishes, but know this, whatever I grant you, whatever you ask for, your husband gets twice as much. The lady says, so what I ask for, I'll get, and my husband gets double what I ask for? That's right. She says, okay. Um, my first wish is, I'd like... A hundred million dollars. The genie says, you got it, but your husband gets 200 million. That's okay, that's okay. 
What's your second wish? I'd like a mansion. Okay, you got it. But your husband gets two mansions. That's okay. That's okay. You got one last wish. What's that? Scare me half to death. I wonder if Abigail was ever tempted to pray that Nabal would get what was coming to him. Well, that's one unhealthy extreme, to want to see the unstable person harmed. But the other unhealthy extreme is to make excuses for the unstable spouse's behavior. Oh, oh, David, David, listen, uh, Nabal didn't mean it. He's so stressed at work. It's shearing season, and four of our shears didn't show up. They're sick, you know, and and so the stress is really building. It's just that time of the year. I'm sorry. Listen, David, you need to forgive Nabal. His mother picked on him as a child. He has very low self-esteem, and sometimes it bubbles up like this. So please, please, there's all sorts of reasons for why he acts the way he does. No. Abigail resisted both of these extremes. She neither made excuses nor did she seek harm for her husband. Now the sad truth is that sometimes when you live with a foolish and unstable spouse, you find yourself in the middle of attention. Abigail modeled how to navigate that difficult middle ground. And that brings us to the third lesson we learn from her, ex- her example. Do your best to face the facts yet protect your partner. Do your best to face the facts, yet protect your partner. Now, do you see how difficult this challenge can be? Do you see how much wisdom one would need to navigate that middle ground? Face the facts, protect your partner. Nonetheless, Abigail did that very thing. She told the truth about Nabal, and she acted to protect Nabal all at the same time. Yeah, Darren, but didn't she go a little bit overboard with the truth part? I mean, wasn't she a little harsh? Please, pay no attention, my lord, to that wicked man Nabal. I mean, seriously? Yeah, he's just like his name. His name means fool and folly goes with him. Pay no attention to my husband. He's a moron. That's what she said. Wasn't she being a little disrespectful to Nabal? She wasn't being disrespectful to Nabal. She was being honest with David. Folks, listen. This isn't two people sitting over coffee discussing their spouses. This is a tense moment. The stakes were incredibly high. Lives were in the balance. There was no time for nuance here. David and his warriors had their swords drawn. They were, uh, adrenaline was pumping. They're just outside of Nabal's home. Abigail had one chance to stop the slaughter. Radical honesty was her only option. But the main reason why I don't think this was uh, disrespect on Abigail's part was her motivation. Abigail's motivation wasn't to humiliate her husband, it was to help her husband. Her motivation wasn't to shame her husband's life, but to save her husband's life. Well, as you read on in the story, Abigail's plan worked. When she concluded her speech, David said in verse 33, May you be blessed because your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. He said, God bless you, woman. You're a smart lady. You've got great judgment and you just showed it. Thank you. You just stopped me from doing something that I might regret later. I appreciate you. David accepted her apology, received her payment, 
turned around and he went home. Well, Abigail turned around and went home as well. But when she arrived home, she found her husband drunk out of his mind, completely oblivious to how close he had come to being slaughtered, how close he'd come to their family losing everything. Which brings us to the fourth and final act in the drama of Nabal and Abigail. Act four. We pick it up at verse 37. It says, in the morning when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things and his heart failed him and he became like a stone. So as I envision, it's the next morning, Nabal's at the breakfast table, Abigail's pouring coffee. So uh, having a good night last night, I see Nabal. Oh yeah, so that was quite a party. She said, yeah, I got home and uh, you were passed out. Yeah, well, sorry. Shearing time, you know, Abby, deal with it. Well, there's something maybe you need to deal with here, Mr. Nabal, fool boy. What are you talking about? Yesterday, I had to go and beg David not to kill you and everyone. What are you talking about? Nabal, you moron, you fool. The way you treated his men, he was furious. He had 400 guys with their swords drawn. They were going to hear, they're here to kill you and kill every man in our household. You moron, I am so sick and tired of what you do. He, if I hadn't given him all of these resources, you were dead, Nabal, dead. And Nabal, he just, he goes white and his heart stops and he, he just panics. He goes into a panic attack. And for days, he's like in a coma, a catatonic state. The Bible says about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. And then it says in verse 39, then David hears about this. Hey, David, you know that Nabal guy? Oh, yeah, whatever happened to him? He died. No way. Yeah, he died. That means uh, Abigail's single. Yep. <laughs> it says, and David sent word to Abigail asking her to become his wife. And they lived happily ever after. No, I'm serious. They did. It's almost a fairy tale ending, isn't it? Justice is done. Abigail is honored. Now, suffice it to say, it doesn't always end with God taking the life of the unstable spouse. So don't be praying that today. That's not the big idea. <laughs> if you cry, he will die. That's not the big idea. I just made that up. That's pretty good. But don't pray it. Sometimes the unstable spouse sees the error of their way and things improve. Other times, the behavior of the unstable spouse gets worse. And for the sake of your safety and your sanity, sometimes you need to separate yourself from that person. Now, the direction that these things will take is uncertain. But there is one thing that can be dependent upon. There is one thing that is true of every situation. And that one thing serves as the fourth and final lesson from Abigail's life. And that's this. You can trust God with the outcome. You can trust God with the outcome. Always this is true. No matter how deep and dark and difficult this gets for you, trust God to work through the circumstances as you submit your life to him. Hold on to truth and hold on to hope. So let me ask you this. Do you have a Nabal in your life? Do you have a stress-filled relationship that cannot easily be terminated? 
Do you have a spouse, a child, a close friend, maybe a business partner or associate whose foolishness and instability constantly spills over into your life? Follow the example of Abigail. Don't react, respond. Don't be drawn into their chaos. Second, do your best to face the facts while protecting the person. And thirdly, in the end, trust God with the outcome. Listen, you can't change the other person, but you can love them. You can't change the other person, but you can change how you respond to them. You can't control the final outcome of your relationship, but you can trust God with the final outcome of your relationship. He can do what no mere mortal can do. So don't be afraid. And don't worry about tomorrow. Trust him. He knows what he's doing. Let's bow our heads together, please, as we're about to conclude with a closing song.